Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. I'm Matt Taini, your host, and this is the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, and also if you have any questions or comments before, after, or during the show, don't forget to email at the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast at gmail.com. So today we're going to cover. I have three three topics we're going to cover. We're going to go ahead and uh, finish up our Shimano story, uh, part five finale. And then I have a little story from uh, one of my favorite races that I ever got to work, which was the Tour of Austria. And then I have a little uh, information um, about, uh, I interviewed a couple of my friends and talk a little bit about how you became a bicycle mechanic. So... Without further delay, let's go ahead and uh, finish off our Shimano story. So if you remember last time we left off, Shimano wasn't in a great place. They had offered some early retirement to um, uh, quite a few employees, and some did take it. Uh, Yoshizo uh, felt really bad for all the the Shimano employees who left during the early retirement program. he felt especially sorry uh, for the vice president of human resources, who um, he was the head of human resources and general affairs, and he was in charge of executing the program uh, for early retirement that we talked about uh, in the last episode. Uh, he he became depressed, and uh, once the program was completed, um, the he also left the company. So um, these were tough times for Shimano. Um, Yoshizo said, uh, I believe that any enterprise will eventually encounter various challenges. The leader of the enterprise, whoever he or she is, should address these challenges in order to ensure the company's continued prosperity and staff members' well-being. If you happen to be the leader during such difficult times, you should always strive to achieve the best possible results. Sometimes you may do it well, other times not so well. Whichever the case may be, you should do your best during your tenure. Just like a runner in a relay marathon, you cannot stop running until you pass the baton to the next runner. As president of Shimano, Yoshizo uh, made a conscious effort to improve product quality. Uh, He had uh, worked in the marketing field for many years, and he knew that if mistakes were made in regards to product quality, that users of those products and distributors would remember it well. Um, I know as uh, mechanics, we, re- we remember product recalls for a long time. Um, in my time as a tech, um, some of the ones I remember the most are the ones uh, with a release timestamp on the email of Friday at 5.03 p.m. Uh, one, foot, one foot out the door with the other uh, close to the computer terminal to hit the send button, it seems. Um, so for Yoshizo's experience, uh, it typically would take, uh, from his experience, it would typ- typically take about seven years to have the unfavorable mem- memory fade away. Yoshizo stated, um, our factories must be kept clean. In early 1997, uh, reports came back that one of the crank models broke when heavy people continued pedaling strongly. Uh, tests on the product showed metal fatigue had occurred. Uh, Yoshizo decided uh, to voluntarily recall the products uh, using newspapers, TVs, and magazines. Uh, the recall was announced. Shimano did face uh, some criticism for the recall, but um, by successfully completing it, the company grew stronger. 
um, while uh, zero non-compliance um, products, otherwise known as recalls, uh, products is the goal, it's always um, a challenge for manufacturers. Um, in early 1997, Yoshizo proposed using English as the official language with the company. He noticed that, that during meetings held in Europe, every participant uh, used English. Even uh, team members from Singapore and Indonesia used English to communicate with each other. Only, only the Japanese members needed to speak through interpreters. Shimano uh, sent several hundred team members to study English uh, as a result um, at, uh, at conversation schools. Um, the, the company would reimburse uh, the school fees for uh, those who acquired a certain level of English skills um, and received a certificate. So they studied pretty hard. Um, by June of 2005, at a meeting of about 200 executives and managers from 21 countries, all the participants discussed matters in English, and all documents were prepared in English as well. Um, currently, Shimano is comprised of many nationalities, uh, and this allowed Shimano to be uh, a more flexible organization. Um, and this is what is known as uh, the concept of Team Shimano. And so as we kind of uh, move towards the end of our kind of uh, Shimano uh, history here, um, Sadly, um, on July 3rd uh, of, two, of 2020, uh, Yoshizo Shimano passed away at 85. Um, he was Shimano's fourth president after his father, um, and then Shozaburo and Kizo. Uh, Shimano's fifth president was Yozo, and the sixth is the current president, Taizo, son of Kizo. And I'll leave you with this. Taizo states, uh, we must strive uh, to create a sustainable society adhering to the following tagline, closer to nature, closer to people. Shimano's mission is to promote health and happiness through the enjoyment of nature and the world around us. So that's kind of the story of Shimano. Um, there's a lot of stuff in between there probably that, you know, didn't, that, that got missed, you know, but it gives you the basic uh, general idea of how the company got started and, and their roots and where they came from and their mindset um, moving forward. Um, I found it really uh, interesting. Uh, and when you're out there turning a wrench and you're working on a, a piece of Shimano equipment and kind of gives you something to think about, um, there's a lot of story to uh, bike manufacturers and, and parts, whether it be Campagnola, Shimano, SRAM, Mavic, Whoever, whatever product you're thinking of, there's a, there's a story behind it all. So it's something to kind of keep in mind. So I'd like to move on to our, our next story, which is kind of a fun one uh, for me. Kind of writing this um, brought me back a little bit uh, to the tour of Austria when I was working for the U.S. national team. And I believe it was 1994. Um, it was my second season with the team. So I got a little bit better at my job. Um, in uh, 1994, Yuri Manis uh, had taken on a new position at the United States Cycling Federation. He was now in charge of travel and accommodations uh, for all the, the cycling national teams. So he was no longer the director with the men's road team like he had been the year before. Uh, Chris Carmichael um, was the boss still. So um, we used about, I think, four or more different uh, coaches, directors, sportives over the 1994 season. 
Um, Chris Carmichael did work a couple of the races, uh, the Tour du Pont and the Settimana Bergamasca, um, a couple that I remember for sure. And then we, uh, some of our other directors we had that year, uh, David uh, Meyer Oaks was one, Clark Natwick, um, and then Yarek Beck, who was actually uh, the director for the Tour of Austria. Um, so for the for the tour of austria it would be yark back uh, from poland um it would this would be our our first time working together he he uh and his brother Andrzej beck uh, had been around the cycling uh, race scene for a long time uh, Andrzej beck um often worked with the the track team and he would often ride or drive on the track uh, a machine called a derny uh, it's a motorcycle used uh, on the track for racers to pace behind in events like uh, a six-day track event or Kieran racing. Uh, they're named after uh, Roger Derny, who built the first one in 1938. They're, they're basically a moped bicycle slash motorcycle. Uh, the name Derny has become a generic term uh, for the small pacing motorcycles made and used in, today, in today's race, regardless of the manufacturer. Um, so that's a little little bit about the Derny. Uh, the, so these brothers, the Beck brothers, um, uh, had a lot of cycling experience between them. They'd been around uh, for a long time. Uh, I remember one day I was in uh, Doug Hatfield's office. He was uh, the director of national team support um, while I was there. And uh, he, uh, he was standing there with Anjay Beck, and Anjay noticed a picture that Doug had on his wall of Eddie Merckx uh, winning, um, winning a race. Um, I think it may have even been Worlds. And he said, uh, he looked at the picture. It was a pretty big picture on the wall. He said, he said there's my brother, um, while pointing to uh, his brother Yarek uh, in the stands cheering on the finishers. It was, it was pretty cool. So, so before I met Yarek, uh, my good friend Dave Pitts had worked with him in the women's tour, which was Dave's first trip to, um, to Europe as a team mechanic. Uh, when, apparently when Dave arrived at the airport in Paris due to some kind of mix-up, the team uh, didn't have vehicles. Uh, the, and apparently Yarek that, thought that the team would have vehicles, but they didn't. So... Um, Yark had to go back to Poland and pick up his own van. Um, and uh, I, I remember it, there's a whole story behind this, and I'll actually probably in a future episode let Dave tell this story. It's, it's, it's pretty darn funny. Um, even though it was a rough start as an international uh, trip, um, can be at times, Dave seemed to enjoy working with Yark, and I remember him telling me about Yark. And so it was my turn to work with him. Um, he was, uh, there was one thing about these, these kind of Eastern European directors is that they somehow, somehow are able to get it done, uh, when it comes to, to taking care of the racers. Kind of, kind of an example of that would be one time we were at a, a, a meal and all the teams for these stage races often would eat together, um, in the same kind of dining hall. And our team, I think, was getting served last um, on the first day. And I think uh, Yarek went and, and talked to somebody, and um, that didn't happen again. We pretty much were some of the first teams served um, from then on out. I don't know what he said to anybody, but some, something worked. So Yarek and I got along really well from the start. Um, 
since it was my um, my second season with the team, I had my job down pretty well. I didn't need any help um, from him. I was self-sufficient and efficient at the same time. Um, we were, of course, in Austria, and I remember it being uh, very cold, even though it was June. It was a very different stage race than others I had worked. Um, the races started really early compared to other uh, stage races I had worked. The races, from what I remember, seemed to start around 9 a.m., um, seemed to be sometimes even sooner, even earlier. Um, we would be done with the race by around 2 o'clock or so, um, sometimes even earlier than that. So the the best part was we were in the Austrian Alps for a lot of this race. It was so beautiful. Uh, we stayed in like these bed and breakfast kinds of hotels um, in these little like mountain towns. Um, all the beds had like down comforters. I mean, it was it was so freaking cozy. It was like cold and rainy and snowy outside and cozy and warm inside. It was it was pretty pretty amazing. I I remember after the race every day, uh, we'd make it to the hotel and all the the other team mechanics would go eat and. Uh, they would go and eat lunch with the racers and um and then i think they would go take a nap or something um i'm not really sure but i I recall that they would see me just going straight to work after arriving at the hotel which is what i had always done um usually uh, someone from the team would bring me something to eat while i was working um i i kind of never really enjoyed eating with the racers right after a race because sometimes it was tense um if the day didn't go well and I, I like finishing my work as soon as possible so I could get to the best part of my day. Uh, the other mechanics would appear in the, in the work area um, after their eating and naps or whatever, just about the time I was finishing. Um, and I remember oftentimes they would, they would mutter under their breath to each other while looking at me as if to say uh, I was doing it wrong. And, and I was fairly certain that I was doing it right. So... When I was finished, I'd go take a nap in that cozy bed with that down comforter and know that my work for the day was done. Um, I didn't really understand the idea of eating and sleeping right after three to five hours sitting in the caravan car. To me, it seemed strange, um, but maybe it's just how they had always done it, and um, not none of them questioned it. I don't know. Um, so I'd nap, then go to dinner with the team, uh, and then Yarik and myself um, would go out for some fun usually. Uh, usually drinking, but sometimes uh, go into town or drive, like we did one time about 40 kilometers to Salzburg. Um, we had a great night, fun walking around the city. I remember there was a Billy Joel concert that had just ended, and the streets were, were filled with uh, festive people. Um, we'd get back late sometimes, but I could always snooze in the caravan car the next day during the race, so I didn't really care. Um, kind of uh, that kind of stuff to me was was some of the best the best things about traveling to to a foreign country um, as a team mechanic was just that that you get to you get to get out and see it. You know, you don't want to you don't want to be stuck in that hotel room. You know, it becomes kind of a tomb. Um, you know, it's Andre the Giant. I don't know if anyone remembers him. He was in The Princess Bride. He was the giant, and he was a wrestler. And he was fame, famous for uh, going out when they would travel and, and kind of partying. And and uh, he said, I don't want to just hang out in my room. You know, it's 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 a tomb. I want to go out and, and 
experience these places and have some fun. And that's kind of the, the route that I took um, as a team mechanic, especially as I got better at the job and more comfortable um, going out and kind of seeing the town and uh, going for a drive or just even just going to the bar. Um, doesn't mean you have to get uh, super drunk every night, um, but if you're not driving, you know, that's fine too. Um, but just getting out and just seeing it, that was one of the, the best things about uh, traveling and, and being paid to do this great job of being a bike mechanic and traveling and seeing the world. So in our next little, uh, final little section here, we're going to, um, going to kind of maybe start a new thing here where we, uh, I'm going to talk to different uh, people that I know who are bike mechanics and we are going to, um, talk about how did you become a bicycle mechanic? Um, how did it all start? So I covered a little bit of this for me on my first, um, podcast, how I got started, but I'm going to kind of review it a little bit and add a little, a few details here. So, so how I got started at a bicycle mechanic, it kind of all started for me at a bike shop called the bicyclery in Half Moon Bay, California on the coast there about, uh, about 25 miles South of San Francisco. Um, at the time I worked in a restaurant, um, right on the beach in California in Montera, uh, the chart house, um, I had worked there since I was 16 and uh, worked my way up from dishwasher to be one of the five head waiters. Um, in my time there, I felt uh, I met a, a friend, uh, Dan Todd was his name, and he had a an Alfredo Geos road bike. Uh, it was so cool. And I had, as I mentioned in my first podcast, I had bought a Fuji mountain bike from a friend um, and I was riding it. Um, so it was time uh, riding it a lot and on the road too. So it was kind of time for an upgrade. Uh, I was ready for a road bike. So, uh, Dan, myself and another friend, uh, from the chart house took a trip, uh, to some bike shops. So I decided I want to get a road bike. And at this time I really needed to know what size road bike, uh, would fit me best. So we went to a couple shops, uh, but no one really seemed to want to help, um, it was weird. Maybe, maybe I didn't look the part. Um, so we decided I'd buy from Colorado cyclists, uh, using their catalog. So I purchased a geos compact, uh, Columbus, uh, SL tubing adjustable dropouts. Cause it was a, it was actually a criterium bike. It had Dura a seven speed down tube shifters. Um, Oh, and it had tubulars. Um, talk about taking the plunge. I mean, so I, just the tubular thing alone was was crazy. Dan uh, Todd had talked me into it. Said they it would be I wouldn't regret it. And honestly, I never have. I don't ride tubulars on a daily basis anymore. But for years I did. Um, so when the bike arrived, um, I started riding a lot, like a lot with Dan, like every day. Um, eventually, pretty quickly, um, not eventually, pretty quickly had to swap out that 42 tooth, uh, small ring for a 39, um, and went with a 23, uh, low gear in the rear instead of the 21 that it came with. Um, it was kind of a crit bike, so it was set up for kind of flats. Um, so Dan glued his own tubulars and, uh, he taught me how to do it. Um, I was hooked. Um, I started going to the bicycle for help and began, um, riding with the owner and, uh, one of the employees. 
so I even I even went with uh, guys from the shop um, and some people that I worked with at the chart house to um, a ride called the Death Ride in California. It's also known as the Tour of the California Alps. So it's south of Lake Tahoe um, ride where you um, could do anywhere from five one to five mountain passes. Um, I did three that that first year. Um, later I would do all five, um, and years later. Um, and then, and one day I stopped by the shop for something, um, I don't remember what, and they asked me if I'd like to work there, the bicycle I said, oh, I don't know anything. Um, they said, we prefer it that way. We'll teach you. So I started the next week and worked, uh, there for there and the restaurant for about two years or so until I decided to quit the restaurant and be a full-time bike mechanic. Um. And that's the only real job I've ever had since is a bicycle mechanic. So one of the one of the other mechanics that I know that I would like to um, I, I asked this question. I said, how'd you become a bicycle mechanic? His name is Hank Williams. And Hank is currently a teacher at, at Lehman College located in the Bronx in New York. Um, so so Hank was was first a bike messenger and a racer. Um, oftentimes you find that to be kind of the case with a lot of bike mechanics. Um, maybe not so much messenger, but a lot of times, uh, we raced first. Um, he, Hank quickly figured out that working on bikes paid much better than, than racing them, uh, at least for him. Um, for most of us, <laughs> that would be true. His, his first shop was in, uh, New York, uh, city's bicycle habitat. Uh, and they in turn, um, sent Hank to Barnett's bicycle Institute where he there met Calvin Jones, who was an instructor at the time. Now Calvin is with Park Tool. Um, and Calvin uh, mentioned uh, the, the U.S. Cycling uh, Federation's Mechanics Clinic. Um, so Hank attended uh, the last mechanics clinic run by Bill Woodall. And we did talk about Bill Woodall a little bit before. Um, sadly, Bill has passed away, but um, quite a character in the, the world of bicycle race mechanics and bicycle mechanics in general. Um, so, so Hank's mentor was Bill Klein at Bicycle Habitat. Um, Bill had worked uh, the women's tour um, with the U.S. team. Um, Hank was, was fortunate to be close uh, to the Campagnola and, and Mavic headquarters at the time in the U.S. Um, where he met Jim, Ing Jim Ingram and Dave Luddy. So, so Hank, Hank currently uh, still works some neutral support races and has his own uh, wheel uh, building business. Uh, it's called Wheel, uh, wheel Logic Wheelworks. And that, that's Hank. So the last mechanic, the, the last mechanic that I will profile today is, um, is Dave Pitts, my good buddy. Um, so Dave, uh, Dave worked at started off at Adirondack uh, two blocks from his house when he was 13 years old. Um, and he, um, he was basically paid uh, with bicycle parts for about a year. Um, another shop uh, in Scotia, Scotia high school days um, was uh, one where he worked. Um, he worked kind of, it sounded like he, he did some sweeping and kind of cleaned the parking lot and did stuff like that basically for free, which is kind of funny. That's how a lot of, a lot of the younger, younger, uh, mechanics start 13 years old. That's pretty young. I didn't really start in a shop till I was, I was like 20 or 19 or 20, I think. Um, so, um, 
Dave saw an ad for, um, after he had been working at a shop for a while, saw an ad in 1990, um, a few years after he was, he was out of high school, saw an ad for a factory mechanic um, at Serata. And he applied and he got the job. Um, he, um, he went from working in a like, kind, of, kind of a garbagey shop before that, um, but one of those places you're not proud of working at, um, to, uh, to working on Serratas with, with C Records, um, uh, C Record groups and stuff. And he kind of became, uh, I think, the wheel building guy there. And um, he, uh, he worked uh, with Mavic for a couple years um, as, as neutral support as well. Um, and Dave was kind of uh, instrumental in getting uh, Serata bikes for Mavic um, for the neutral support program where they had slim chance bikes before. So, um, and um, Dave worked, uh, worked for Serata for a while. And when I met Dave, um, he had, I guess, received an invite um, to the U.S. Uh, cycling camp um, to the mechanics clinic. I don't think he went to the clinic that I went to, but um, he ended up uh, doing some work for, for the U.S. cycling team and, and kind of moving out um, to Colorado and ended up uh, living in the house with uh, Doug Hatfield and myself. And uh, I remember coming back from a trip and, and Dave was, uh, was sleeping uh, on the couch at our house. I think he actually bought the couch. I think it was 85 bucks. Um, and he slept on the couch there and, uh, we became, at first I was kind of annoyed. There was this other guy living at my house. Uh, but quickly we became really good friends and, uh, Dave's a good guy. We actually were in each other's weddings and, um, still talk frequently. Um, I would love to have Dave interview Dave and have him on the show at, at one point and tell some of the stories of some of his trips, um, that were pretty darn interesting. Um, so there's that. Um, and then, uh, we're going to go ahead and and wrap it up here, but we're going to, I'm going to have other, uh, other profiles of people, how people became mechanics. And I promise they won't all be, um, uh, team mechanics. We'll probably, we'll get some shop shop mechanics in there too. I know quite a few here in Portland that would be interesting to talk to. So, um, so that's it for today's show. Uh, I, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, don't forget, uh, you can always email me at the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast at gmail.com with any questions or comments or concerns, grievances, and such. Uh, don't forget to check us out on Instagram. And in the meantime, uh, keep on wrenches and keep on wrenching, and we will enjoy your company next time. 